I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Divya Mira. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. And you've just heard Divya Mira being named the winner of the prestigious 2022 Sobe Art Award. The ceremony was held at the National Gallery of Canada. Here's the Winnipeg-born artist, just after accepting the annual prize, speaking, well, more like whispering, to Ideas producer Mary Link. I, I feel bananas. This is, this is surreal. I'm, I'm like sweating through my clothing right now. What even happened? I can't, I don't. I have had such an incredibly traumatic year. I, this is like a dream. I have no idea what to say. This is not real. You're standing here. What are we doing? I need to go home. Tomorrow we're going to talk about this. When oh, my God. Oh we're going to sit down. We're going to talk about this surreal moment. But you this know what? So well deserved. Thank you so much. And you will hear more from Divya in this program and the four other finalists. Art is life. Art is not static. I make art because I can't do anything else. <laughs> I make art because I don't want to do anything else. I make art because I need to make art to survive. Art is the, why do you say that, the heart of the society. What we can use to make some balance. Today, the new masters, the 2022 Sobe Art Award. The winner and finalist in conversation with Mary Link at the National Gallery of Canada, where works from each artist were exhibited. My name is Aza El-Sadiq. I am an artist. I do sculpture and installation. And I was born in Khartoum, Sudan and grew up in Canada. When did you come to Canada? I was four. Well, why did your family, I'm just sort of curious, why did they leave the Sudan? So my father did his PhD at UBC. And also, while they were there, it was a time that the dictator that was recently overthrown. They were activists against his regime as well. And so have you gone back? I have not gone back. Never? No. What, what are your memories? Uh, you left when you were four. Do you have memories? Yes, I do. Uh, I have memories of playing outside and it being so hot <laughs> that I, was, <laughs> I wasn't wearing shoes and I was just, the ground was scorching hot and just kind of like bouncing around. And I have memories of this man, he was on a camel and he'd come by with these like dried fruits and treats, kind of like the version of the ice cream man, <laughs> you know, but on a camel in the desert with dried, I guess, healthier treats and just being really excited to get something, you know. And yet you left when you were four and you've never gone back yet. Do you hope to go back? I do hope to go back. I do hope to go back. It does feel truly a little bit complicated, especially 
being very open about my sexuality and being queer and being married to a woman, that does make me think about potential dangers of being in spaces like that where of course homosexuality is against the law that can be life and death then yes well hopefully someday that will definitely change yeah. and evolve can you describe your piece that is showing at the national gallery right now as part of the sobe art award and it's very striking it's called measure of one tell yes. me about that So Measure of One, a lot of my work, I do a lot of research on ancient Egyptian and Nubian mortuary sites and temples. And so specifically with Measure of One, I was looking at Terhaga, who is a Nubian pharaoh that ruled both Egypt and Sudan. And he had built Sun Temple in this really large complex called Karnak. So when I was looking at his sun temple, something that really strikes me is the entryway into the temple where you have to go through a stairwell to get there. And in that stairwell, one of the first things that you're presented with is the really famous funerary text called the Litany of Ra. And the Litany of Ra consists of 75 manifestations of the god Ra. And I thought that was really beautiful and poetic in this way, how one entity can be fractured into all these different forms. So with Measure of One, it consists of 75 vessels that come out in groups and they go through a transformation that happens where there's a slow drip irrigation system where one drop penetrates each row. So thinking about how this one drop affects all these multiple layers and then how these objects, in ways I like to think of them as humans because through my research I also look at mythology and a lot of the gods that were in African folklore and ancient Egyptian the gods that were potters created humans so really yes yeah so thinking of that and like of the earth and these clay vessels that you have placed on these it's really sort of beautiful metal sculpture that's quite large and layered they are not Fired. They're not, they're not, you didn't put them in the kiln, right? They're, yeah. So they're going to, they're temporary. And so why did you make them temporary? Because they'll break down. Why did you do that? Yeah. I mean, just with life, that art is not static. I feel like it wouldn't convey the same messages that I'm trying to express if these were very static, fired objects. And I think also something that really attracts me to like the sort of research and like mythology and the folklore is just thinking about how ancient Egyptians and Nubians believe that the gods emerge from the primordial waters of men. And then to think about Darwin's theory of evolution, how humans emerge from the waters. Some of your work includes scent which is really important to you, and that you say that scent makes you time travel. Why is scent incorporated in some of your work? Scent, for me, I think it would be incorporated in all of my works if it wasn't for certain limitations. Some spaces have strict rules about 
having scent in a space. But for me, growing up with the Sudanese diasporic community, scent was a really big part of my culture. And when I think of scent, I think about these really powerful Sudanese women that immigrated from Sudan that were doctors, lawyers, or whatever, and then they're here in Canada and they're working at a grocery store, you know? And just thinking about these really powerful women and the sacrifices that they make in order to uphold their communities, their families, and the lack of recognition that they get. So when I use scent, it's this, for me, it's a really powerful tool. The scent actually, it's invisible, but it really takes up a space. We've become almost puritanical, haven't we, about scent? Yes, totally. What kind of scent, then, in terms of Sudanese, like what kind of scent evokes a powerful connection mm-hmm. to you? What specific scent? Uh, sandalwood. Yeah, sandalwood is very evocative to Sudanese culture. I've been apprenticing with a Sudanese perfumer. Oh, cool. It's this, this knowledge that's passed down to others. And she had taught me how to make some of the Sudanese incense and just thinking about certain materials like sandalea, which is a sandalwood oil, how that is used in the incense And then it's also used on the body during a Muslim burial. So for me, those are the two main scents that I work with. And I think about those as oscillations between life and death, but then how death is also, it's that sort of ingredient that's part of life. So when you smell sandalwood... It gives me comfort and power, because like I think about my loved ones that I have lost, and to smell that sandalia, it makes me feel closer to them. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. The Sobiard Awards are about to be announced. How are you feeling right now? I feel good. Like, I feel, um, well, I feel surprised that I'm here, <laughs> you know? Why? <laughs> um, I think making ephemeral installation work, I didn't think it would resonate with so many people. Yeah, just uh, I feel happy to be here, and I also feel um, I feel I guess Seen in the way that the work is connecting with people. It's important to be seen. My name is Crystal Silverfox. I grew up in Vancouver, BC, and I currently live in Whitehorse, Yukon Territory. Um, I am a member of Selkirk First Nation. I am a citizen of the Wolf Clan, I would say. And I'm not sure if citizen is the right word, but (laughs) I belong to the Wolf Clan. And a lot of my artwork explores my identity as an urban Indigenous woman, as well as it reflects back on Northern Tachoni aesthetic traditions. You like to think about objects as belonging, which I love. It's a very poetic thought. Tell me more about that. What does that mean? 
Well, I actually, um, I'd say I stole the idea from artist Dana Claxton. It's always good to steal our ideas. <laughs> I, she wrote an essay called Northwest Coast on the Upload, and it's talking about the internet. It's a very good essay, very short. I think it's like five pages long, but she does mention in it that the objects that we make as artists are actually, kind, they refer back to us, but then they also have their own space. So I'm thinking about an object like, I belong because of this object, but the object is also, like, belonging somewhere else to a bigger picture. Yeah, because art is to be shared in one sense, isn't it? Yeah, 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 for sure. It's part of the collective. It's why we all go see it. It's why we're touched by it. Something that the artist creates, and sometimes it has a completely different meaning for others. We were just down in front of your work, and I found it very moving, your work, because um, there's is a lot of beauty in it, but there's also the pain of the past, but it's also reclaiming. Let's talk about some of your pieces. How does Hudson Bay Company figure in your art? Talk to me about All That Glitters Is Not Gold, that piece. Okay, so the Hudson's Bay Company blankets, back, I guess, 150 years ago? Anyway, like mid-19th century, when settlers were moving into the Yukon area, like the Hudson's Bay Company, Um, We didn't have a Hudson's Bay company in my territory originally. So we would do trade with the Chilkat Clinkett people on the coast, and they had a Hudson's Bay company. So we used to trade Chilkat weavings. Like, they would give us weavings, and we would give them different resources, Mm -hmm. such as copper. And they would make copper shields and whatnot. Anyway, they would give us Chilkat blankets, but when the Hudson's Bay company moved in, it was a lot more, I guess... It was easier to give beautifully made Hudson's Bay blankets rather than spending years to weave Chilkat weaving. And so we started receiving these blankets. And part of our potlatch ceremony back then, this is before the pot or during the potlatch ban, I guess around the time when the potlatch ban is getting implemented, is during potlatch, we would rip the blanket apart and gift it to people and that would show kinship was the ripping when they shared it in the ceremony was it to destroy the blanket and just give you a piece of a blanket i mean was it still usable after they would rip the blanket yeah so you could do different things with the blanket you could actually um manipulate it and turn it into let's say a baby blanket or clothing like a coat or a shawl or something like that yeah so eventually the hudson's bay moved into my territory at fort Selkirk. And so we had our own way to get these blankets. And the Clinket people did not like that, so they burnt down the Hudson's Bay trading post twice. Oh, really? In your territory? <laughs> yes. So it, it is like, um, right now, Fort Selkirk is a historic site. And it does have like a, a history, a history about the Hudson's Bay Trading Company, and as well as it being like a meeting place between my First Nation or the Northern Tachoni people, as well as the Clinket people. What emotion does the Hudson Bay blanket bring out in you now? <laughs> it's it, okay. So I know it looks like I'm violently ripping apart these blankets. <laughs> well, describe. Well, that's right. We'll describe the piece. Describe all that glitters not gold for people who are, can't see it. It's it's in the yeah. so all that glitters is not gold is a four point Hudson's Bay blanket, and the point actually point number of points refers to the size of the blanket and the points are actually used to because it's a felted blanket so when they weave the blanket together it's much larger and then they shrink it down and the points are a way to measure the size and so all that glares it's not gold is a 
it's one of these blankets, it is the millennium stripe, which is a bunch of grays. And the blanket itself was ripped in half by my auntie. So I have like family helping me out with this project. So the blanket was ripped in half and then there is fringe attached to the blanket that drapes down to the floor. And so the, it looks like a ripped blanket. It really does because of the fringe on it. It does have that reference to potlatch ceremony and ripping and destroying things. However, my, my own personal relationship with the bay, growing up in Vancouver, I would always meet my family at the bay because that, that's like central downtown. It's like, let's meet at the bay. Let's go shopping. So I feel like there's this, it, it does refer back to my own Northern Tachoni culture, but it also reminds me of home, like my mom and my sister. How is life as an artist going for you? Oh, it's going amazing. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I, I'm so happy and I feel blessed that I get to do this for a living. Like this is, I can't believe this is my life. It, it, I feel like I'm living the dream. Just being here, being part of the shortlist, I feel like that is like having my art in the National Gallery. That's that's my win. It is your win. Uh, just before we go, describe your studio. Like, where do you create art? Oh no! <laughs> so I actually uh, I live in a basement suite, and I create art in my I'd say dining room area. So I, I am never really separated from my artwork. It's just always there. So what's on your dining room table right now? Oh, um, I have a couple of paintings. Of? One of them is a crow for my auntie who helped me with the blanket. And then another one is just uh, an ovoid, which is um, Northwest Coast form line design. Is it good to be surrounded by art? Yeah, but also I kind of wish I had a, a studio space so I wasn't... <laughs> You know, like waking up in the middle of the night and thinking about art and what I'm going to do. But I'm pretty sure if I did have a studio space, I'd probably still work from home regardless. But you know what? I mean, you probably will someday have a studio space. But but your joy and your love of what you do is so infectious. And I think that you you find happiness wherever it seems when it comes to your art, wherever you make your art then. Yeah, well, I think um, you can use everything to make art or... You can find art anywhere, and to see the beauty in the world, that's all I really want. Next up, Tyshawn Wright, representing Atlantic Canada. He lives in Halifax and was born in Jamaica. Tell me about where you grew up in Jamaica. You grew up in a maroon town, right? Yes, I grew up in a very small indigenous community called a Kampong in Jamaica. Population is maybe a thousand people. If I could just back up a little bit. Sure. So during the transatlantic slave trade, the Maroon won their freedoms from the British and established independent communities on the island of Jamaica. So a Kampong is one of those communities, and that's where I grew up. What's really interesting, too, is that, you know, so you grew up in a Maroon town, but then you ended up coming to Canada and marrying you know, Shante Grant, who I know well, who's a, who is a poet laureate of Halifax. She's a singer. Yeah. She's everything. She's just an amazing, Thanks. amazing <laughs> person. But you, you, you two are married and you have two young children, but you came to Nova Scotia, which is really significant too, because the Maroons, so the Maroons were created, what, in about the culture in the 1700s. And 
then some came to, were brought to um, yes. Nova Scotia centuries ago. Yeah. How were they brought? Tell, tell about that. And then you, centuries later, coming yourself. So after the peace treaty, you have what known are what called the Second Maroon War. And the Second Maroon War, according to you know, the British record, according in to Jamaica. the British in Jamaica, according to the British one maroon, they said stole a pig. And the, the, the British have that maroon flag so hard that it literally put the rest of the community it was very embarrassing, you know, for the rest of the maroon to witness it. And so the Maroon decided to burn down their entire village. And so they, they literally burned their entire village to the ground and, and decided to take back to the hill or took to the hill once more again. And so within the first few months of the war, um, the British lost several yeah, casualties. The Maroon lost none. And um, the British said to them, listen, let's come to the table again. Let's, let's call a truce. Let's renegotiate and give you, and gi- give you maroons a, a, another plot of land so you can live in peace and tranquility. But when they came down, they were tricked and put in chains and exiled here to Nova Scotia. And then during that exile, they were denied all their spiritual instruments, so to speak. And that's where, <laughs> as you put it, century, life, Rolled, Shanti, you know, life brought my wife and I together, if I may say so. You know, I, I, I um, it's amazing sometimes just when you think you have life all figure out. And then life, yeah, they, they, just, they just said, you think you're in control, but you're not. You think you're in control, but you're not. And so... Did you move from Jamaica to, yeah. to Nova Scotia? Yes. Wow. I, <laughs> Shanti and I, life brought us together. Um, in a very magical, mysterious way. There's a narrative arc that we don't even realize is being created sometimes. Yes. The narrative yes. arc of you coming as an artist here yep. to, to Nova, or we're in Ottawa, but we're coming to Nova Scotia. And, that, that, and, and when Maroons came to Nova Scotia way back when, centuries before, they weren't allowed to bring their instruments. They weren't allowed to bring their instruments. In terms of tangible things, they came with nothing tangible. But what you cannot take from an individual is what they know in terms of their thought process. So they weren't allowed to take anything, let alone instruments. Let alone instruments. But during the transatlantic slave trade, the Maroon developed a set of instruments which were able to tap into another aspect of life or another dimension of life. And so with, with these instruments, they, they, they could have drawn and, 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 and a different... They, they could have accessed a dimension where they pull energy from. And so they were able to win the war. So the, the Maroon win more of a spiritual war than a right. physical so this, war. And this is really important because one of your pieces talks about this, and it's called... My, Maya. Maya. Yes. Yes. So tell me about Maya, because that's... And, and one of your pieces goes into that because this is what you're talking about. The, yes. it, it brings you into a different dimension. Yes. And, 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 and so the British knew what these instruments can do. And so that was the reason for denying them these instruments. But what is my... Some things you have to experience. But I'll say my... Is, it's, it's really entering into a space where it could be with one ancestor or more or with the, with the larger existence of life. It depends on the limitation 
of one, of you as an individual, in terms of what is it that you personally looking for? What is it that you want? And I think, you know, in terms of an individual, you know, it's only you can put a boundary around you as an individual. No one else can necessarily do that. The mind itself, it doesn't matter where you place it, it have the opportunity to roam as far as it wants to roam, so to speak. And, and, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really my... So one of your pieces is, is, a, is of a drum, of a traditional uh, maroon drum, right? Yes. That you made... Uh, as art, it all is also representation. Yes. When playing this, is that when you can go into this state, or how does it work? So, in terms of, I'm simplifying I, I, too much, probably. <laughs> Again, sometimes a lot of things best known as experience. So there are yes. certain beats to these drums. There are certain music that goes to these drums. There, there's a there's a, a bit more that take place. For example, there are certain songs back home where we only sing those songs unless we definitely trying to access that dimension. And, and this, is, this is just my own life experience. I, this is my life experience. It's, it's not the truth. It's, it's, not, it's, it's no one else's truth but mine because truth is a difficult thing to determine when life is really about perspectives. So for me, I've learned that Pursuing life selfishly is dangerous. And so there are a lot of people who try to access Maya, so to speak, and have falter on their own self because you're seeking something which necessarily is very selfish. And in the end, how will it help the individual around you or the earth, so to speak, in general? I know you say you have to experience it, or maybe you can't articulate it then, but... Can you tell me of an experience of your own, personal? The experience is, <laughs> it's, in terms of experience, it's about sitting outside. Where if, if a leaf moves, it can bring tears to your eyes. You know, the wind, it just, just brings tears to your eyes. It's just dry, it's just pure dry. Wherever you turn, it's just dry. It's really come to a place where you realize that you're fully if I, from my perspective, you fully understand love. As I once described it to someone that love is not something you can turn up and turn down because what it does, it literally throw you off balance because you're up here, but no, you're down here. But when you discover love, it's like flipping a light switch within a dark room. And once it goes on and you see what's in there, there is nothing to turn up and turn down. You may, you may meet someone who um, your spirit may not gel with, but you can't hate that individual. You cannot despise that individual because you can't, once the switch is on, it's just on. And so that's my experience of Maya. It's, it's just expanding life and discover that everything around you is alive. Everything around you is really, is alive, you know. But you just got to... Open yourself up. Open yourself up. You just got to open yourself up and you realize that everything is alive. Everything is just alive and well. You're listening to The New Masters, the 2022 Sobe Art Award on CBC Radio 1 in Canada 
across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The Sobe Art Award began 20 years ago and quickly evolved into one of the most celebrated art prizes in Canada, recognized around the world. The finalists are selected from five regions across Canada. The top prize is now $100,000. In the final part of the show, you'll hear from the winner, Divya Mera. But first, another finalist, Stanley Fevrier, representing Quebec. He was talking to Ideas producer Mary Link the day before the award ceremony. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm feeling exciting. I can imagine it's a day, so I don't know. I try to relax, but... I think everybody's kind of, you know, feeling the nerves right now. It's yeah. pretty impressive. What was it for you to see your work in the National Gallery, or maybe it's been here before, I don't know. No, that's the first time. For me, it's a huge accomplishment. I was working a lot for that. It takes time for the media or the art world to accept what I'm doing, because it's a critical, institutional critique. So the people, like four, five years ago, they was not ready for that. Yeah, so much, because you're challenging. Like one of your, your most significant pieces is it was challenging the lack of representation yeah. of diverse voices in, um, in, in art and in art museums. So I start to investigate the art world, but it was very um, big surprise to see the lack of diverse people and all the collection of the museum. And this museum was a museum contemporaire. The in, Montreal. Yeah, in Montreal. From here too, Beaux-Arts de Québec, Beaux-Arts du Canada, Fine Art of Montreal. Tell me about going into there, into say that museum or whatever museum, and what you saw and what you didn't see. Uh, what I saw, the first thing I sent them a letter to know how many diverse people you have in your collection. So no one could answer me that the reason I start to analyze the collection name by name to see uh, where, where that artist from, the color of his skin, her sex. So I discover like, for example, the Mac in 15 years, they only buy only one black artist. They've only bought one black artist. Yeah. And, this, and is, this is a very important contemporary museum yeah. in, in Montreal and Montreal. Yeah, in Montreal. And, 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 and Montreal, I mean, you're Haitian background. You're born in Haiti. Yeah. There's a huge Haitian community. Sure, in Haiti. You know, in, 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 in Quebec and because of the connection of the French. Yes. And artists and thinkers and some of the creme de la creme. Sure. So they're in Montreal. And they're yet, in Montreal. But like there was no artist who are no Haitian. One, that's interesting. No. <laughs> but I, that that's what I was in shock. I said, okay, so my skin has the impact yeah. on my career. I couldn't ignore that. 
So now I start to find all the artists in her studio to know where they are to create a collection, a new a museum that works to, to show them. So we're here, we exist, we have an art world, it's very important, and they have a huge contribution. We all uh, contribute in the art world in, in Quebec and Canada. So I start to buy them to really? create a collection. I became with a curator outside of the, the museum. How did you buy all this? Where did you get the money to buy all this art? Oh, that's uh, the good <laughs> question. I say thanks you to Canada Art Council and Quebec Art Council and the CAL, but I put my home money because I, I um, in 2020, I won the prize from Quebec Musée National des Beaux-Arts. I used that money to, to, buy art. to buy art. So for me, it was very important to show the museum if they really have interest for us, they will do the same thing they did for the white men. Right. Art, you know? And tell me about that piece, a performance piece, where people are dressed in black cloth all over their face so they're just all covered in black so you don't see their faces or anything and they have this paper around their feet and it was in front of it was front of the contemporary, contemporary right yeah. art museum in Montreal tell me about that and that um, day all that paper it was the report annual report annual reports of the museum of the museum St. Catherine Street we have a manifest we read the manifest and I start to destroy all that. You start to shred all shred, the yeah. annual reports, your collection of years of annual reports. And was yeah. that the feet of the of Yeah, the it's people? in the museum. Yeah. I found a director, John Zepetili, yeah. to show them now it's time to make a new And experience. how did they respond to that? Oh, my God, it was a collapse. No answer, no. Did they know you were going to do it? No, they didn't know. Oh, so it was sort of a, a flash, a flash, flash yeah. mob art slash yeah. protest slash protest, um, statement. Statement, yeah. So I was waiting for them to, to open the dialogue because what I tried to do for all that years is to put all that museum on the table mm -hmm. to have a dialogue, you know? For me, no one asked us, no one invited us to have a point of view you know, they just... Did you try before you did the art piece to have contact with them about sure, this? Sure, and they didn't respond? Sure. I sent letters. You I sent I letters? I sent letters by email, by post, by, yeah. To talk about the lack to of diversity. Talk, yeah, diversity. And so they, and you had no response? No. No yeah. response? No response, yeah. For how so, long were you doing that? You know, I met... Uh, that, that's crazy, you know. Did it change? Has it changed with all this that you've done so far? Are you seeing the museums? I mean, yeah. Now they start to buy a couple artists, and, and my idea—it's not only about black artists, you know. It's everyone they call others. Yes, others. I said, if we really need to change things, we need to be sitting in the table. We change things together. I think now the museum have a big responsibility to to show the real face. Tell me about the piece, The End of the World. Describe it for people. Uh, oh, my God. It's um, what I did is the cemetery. Yeah, it's a cemetery. So, it's it, yeah, you walk in, and it's like you see, it almost looks like tombstones, like big yeah. white tombstones. And there's, I don't know how many there are. There's quite a few. Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. But they're not tombstones. No. 
They're shred- yeah, yeah, dry. How you say that? They're shredders. Shredders. Yeah. And that's shredders. what you did at that at that protest and that art piece when they weren't responding to your emails. Is you shred yeah. it? So these are these are sculptural sh- uh, shredders. shredders. Yeah. What is a piece over it? There's a circular like wreath. Oh, it's a flowers. My idea is to create a symmetry uh, to remind us all that practice before should be. What do you say? Buried? Yes, buried. Buried? Past, yeah. The past should be buried to have a new world, a new way we have to do things. Yeah, I believe things are going to change. For the good? Yeah, for the good, for the good, yeah. Because we know that, you know, and if, like, only five years ago, I couldn't show that piece. The, the cemetery, the no. Yeah. This has has any museum. Is this the first time it's been in? Has it been in another yeah, museum yeah, before? Yeah, I made it for no, no. I made it for this wow. show because before no one would like it. Accept it because it's a big statement and about a museum. Yeah, it's a powerful piece. Thank you, thank you. My name is Divya Mera, and I'm a finalist for the Sobe Art Award, um, and I'm from Winnipeg. Okay, so let's go back to last night. Yeah. Please join me again on stage for the 2022 Sobe Art Award winner announcement. Divya Mera. What did you? What went through your head when you heard your name being announced? I didn't believe that it was real in that moment. And it's transformative, isn't it? I mean, it's going to change your life because being an artist is not an easy choice in life. Being an artist means to be judged constantly. Everything's subjective and how they feel about it. And people can be cruel and be difficult because, you know, everybody has their idea of what art is supposed to be. It has been incredibly challenging. I grew up in Winnipeg. And I went to art school there, and it was very, very difficult and, like, a very complicated experience doing my undergraduate degree there. And Why was it difficult? Um, because I would have instructors that would tell me that my work was not Indian enough. Really? Yeah. A, non, a non-Indian telling you that your work wasn't Indian enough? Yeah, like, I failed my thesis year in my, in my undergraduate years because my work was not Indian enough. And I don't, you know, when I, when I think about it now and I, I talk about it, I'm just like, this was so, like, this was so nonsense, like, to say something like that. It's like, I didn't realize that this was something that could actually be judged, you know, that it was something that it was like, it's like, we're grading you on this. And it, Did and they use that phrase, though? That it was not Indian enough. I had gone to India for part of my thesis year and right. come back and the work that I was making, I didn't really have language for at the time. It was like work that was sort of exploring what it meant to be a diasporic person. So not having a home specifically, like, you know, India not being a place that I could call home and Canada not being a place that I that I could call home. So sort of existing in this like in-between space time. So all the work that I produced was somewhere in the middle or, or trying to speak to that like middle space. And it didn't really take on the shapes or the forms that they wanted it to. And so some of the feedback I got at that moment was that because I just come back from India, they were like, 
you know, work from India, Divya, should be very colorful and very scented and very um, wow. bright and like this. It's like, this is not Indian enough. You know, and the work that I had produced was like one of the pieces. Um, oh my gosh, yeah, no, I def won't talk about oh, my undergraduate. Me, tell me what, no, no like, tell me what one of the pieces was. One of my undergraduate works was just um, these jars that I had made that were like empty jars that I spray painted the caps red and made little red silk bags for. And I sold karma on, you know, as like an undergraduate project. Oh, I love that. Just like empty, these empty jars um, on the street. And people, like a lot of people love them, but... Um, How much does karma cost? I'm curious. Um, back in the day, only $5. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'll buy one. But that was like the joke behind that that work for me at that time, you know, like in that very early stage that it was, it was this idea that this person of Indian origin could sell you something like this. And so it didn't matter what you did in the day, but the joke was that you would just open this jar and like sprinkle on that good karma and you'd be okay. You know, it's like a, a joke, a joke amongst my friends, but uh, my committee definitely did not, did not appreciate it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. I get it. I think it's quite, quite smart. Thank you. Okay. So let's talk about the big bouncy castle. Afterlife of colonialism, a reimagining of power. And I love this for so many reasons, which I'll, I'll tell you in a bit. But first, for people listening, can you describe it? It is a very large 15 by 15 by 15 foot green bouncy castle that is made to look like the Taj Mahal. And there's no jumping allowed. And it's hand-painted? It's all, it is all Made hand, in India. Yeah, it's made in India. It's hand-painted, yeah. And you've said things we make, art we make, are, it's always secondary, that the key is reaction to the art. And so what, what were you trying to say, what, on your end of the conversation, of Art Creates Conversation, what were you trying to say with the Taj? With that work, I was really thinking about how diasporic people are understood, like South Asian diasporic people. Even that term is like a very funny term because it encompasses so many different people. It's like, how are we seen in relation to the West and to that gaze? One of the quickest symbols or signifiers that came up was the Taj Mahal. And this is something, this is like an image that you see, you know, whether it's on things like rice bags or jewelry boxes or, you know, puzzle sets. It's like, it's like an image that is sort of everywhere. It's very popular and it becomes like this stand-in for, again, like South Asian diasporic people. So it was, it seemed like it was easy to work with in that way, but it isn't specifically about the Taj Mahal so much as it is about the gays. And, and, and for me, in my end of the conversation, I was very struck by it and I'll tell you how it affected me because when I, like 40 years ago, I lived in India for a year right after university and I went at one point to Agra and you know, chaotic beauty surrounding Agra, the life of India, the smell, the poverty, the joy, all the all those sort of extremes on either ends that is India that is so rich and interesting. And then there's the Taj, which seems completely, to the tours, it's completely apart from it. It's like the tours quickly go through the real India to get to the Taj. And then the Taj itself is more to take a photograph to say you've been there as opposed to the reverence of the place. And so for me, it was like your piece was sort of like the Disney world, you know, and, and, it's, and it's taking for granted something that is quite significant, but also ignoring w- what is surrounding it, what the real India, so to speak, the, the India that exists. What, what, what about you? Like, when was the first time you went to 
Agra. And, and did you feel that way too about the disconnect with the tours? Yeah, absolutely. There? The first time, um, the first time I had the chance to see that space was with my father. I think I must have been like 18 or 19. And exactly what you're saying, it's like, it, it, it's how I felt again, you know, whether or not I had the words for it at the time, but, you know, going to this like mausoleum, going to this like place of eternal love. That's right, because this it, monument. It, was, it was built as a, for, for the dead wife, the late wife. Yeah, yeah. And it is, instead of like thinking about that, you just had all of these tours in this space. Instead of thinking about how special this space was, people were just kind of taking these like very funny perspective photos all over. Yeah, they do certain and just, angles so they look bigger than the Taj or whatever. It's a real absolutely, sort of, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, it was like kind of like a, a strange thing to witness in real time. I think you you just mentioned the words like Disneyland, and it really felt that way. Like these places just become these 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 places that you know deserve so much more respect and reverence. Instead, just sort of become or are reduced to, yeah, like a tourist... It's a checkbox. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, heartbreaking for that It is heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, because there's no time spent thinking about what, what it is that you're looking at. There is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away, which is another piece of yours from 2020. I didn't do the whole title, but tell me about this piece. Oh, so that, that work is, like, a, a project, part of a project I did for the Mackenzie Art Gallery in 2019, um, in Regina. In Regina. I was invited by John Hampton, who was the curator at the time, doing my research uh, into sort of the Mackenzie's history. I learned about Norman Mackenzie, the founder of the space, and some of his travels, which included travels to India. <laughs> and Who was he? He was, a- he was a lawyer. And his good friend, Edgar James Banks, pardon me, the two of them were had this history and this relationship that made up, uh, from what I've learned, Indiana Jones, that that character was sort of based on... Really? Yeah, that was based on them or based on his buddy Banks uh, more than Mackenzie. But learning about that and learning that they were sort of just traveling all over the place, like making up their artwork collection was like a really fascinating thing. And I read about, in one of Norman's biographies, read about the fact that he had, you know, acquired was the language as opposed to looted, but acquired a carving from India of Vishnu. And I asked uh, the team at the Mackenzie if I could have a look at this, of, of this acquired statue. And they were, the Mackenzie team was super generous and they also allowed me to spend some time with Norman Mackenzie's book of notes, like his diary essentially, that documented everything that he was again acquiring or stealing. And Norman spoke about going to the banks of the Ganga in 1913 or the Ganges and seeing a carving that he really loved and he wanted he wanted it for himself and he ended up convincing somebody to steal that on really yeah on his behalf and how big is it it's very small um i'm like trying to remember the exact dimensions but i think it's like 11 inches like it's very small and he brought it over in 1913. They're very significant. Yeah, these statues, these carvings do represent these gods. And so when they're removed from their place of worship, it's like devastating for a community. Did he admit that he had it stolen? Did he yeah, it? absolutely. That's like wow. documented in his notes. He was just like, I wanted this. I mean, his language was like, not just I wanted this, but it was pretty close. <laughs> and what ended up happening was... And when was this? 1913. So he brought it over. It was like identified as being Vishnu. And when I had a look at it in the vault, it was 
definitely not a male statue or a male carving. It was a female carving, but I decided to start reaching out to a few different friends of mine in Canada and the States and, and in India to see if anyone was able to identify who the deity was. A friend and respected colleague, Siddhartha Shah, was able to identify the carving as the goddess Annapurna, and that uh, she's the goddess of nourishment. And that, as soon as we learned that, I went back to John and asked what the possibility of a repatriation would be. And if that was something that the Mackenzie was interested in engaging with. And John was incredible and supportive and to work with the team and to work specifically with him in this way that like to go to an institution and be like, you need to deaccession this and have the institution respond by saying like, yep, how important was it then a statue in that sense? How important was the restitution? Or, or the statue to, to, to India to, to get it back? Oh, there was like a four-day ceremony in honor of that restitution happening. The Prime Minister of India, like it made, it made international news that this carving was coming back and it became... And did Modi take a credit? You bet, absolutely. He's yeah. a controversial yeah. fellow, is he not? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was also something about the way that as that news was sort of unfolding, it, you know, here was a conversation I started with John and then it like became a conversation between nation states and then and then it was like very much like a conversation with Modi and the government and and it had the sort of like place where we began this conversation, it had it had traveled very far from. What ended up happening with that deaccessioning was what could fill the gap if this work was actually deaccessioned. And I don't know why I spend so much time in this instance thinking about Indiana Jones, but it's probably because of Banks's relationship to Mackenzie. And I suggested a bag of sand. Why a bag of sand? Because in Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> Indiana Jones does that switch right before he's like chased through that temple where he, so he steals this golden idol and as he's like removing it, he places this pouch that's just filled with what he thinks is the equivalent amount of weight that he's removing. And he tries to do it as quickly as possible. He's like, no one's going to notice. And he like switches them out. And then he's like, okay, I did my job. And I think he like probably like wipes his brow. He's like, oh. And then like two seconds later, a boulder and arrows and all this starts chasing him out. So he did a bad job. But that sandbag, that pouch is something that, you know, is like very iconic in relationship in relationship to this character. I love this. Yeah. What a, what a brilliant idea Thank to you. do that. Thank you. I saw it because it's here. It's the, here a, right the now. The biggest sand yeah. is here. <laughs> it's here, yeah. And so I, I produced this work. I bought the bag of sand undyed from like a, a, a Hollywood prop store and and then just spent a few months like dying and aging it, which was a lot of fun, and filled it with the equivalent amount of sand that the Annapurna carving that was repatriated weighed. So filled it with that much, and the Mackenzie ended up acquiring the work to fill the gap in their collection. And I have since said that the work is additioned so that if there's other institutions that want to engage in these conversations of actual material change, it's like, what does that look like? You know, you can all buy a bag of sand. <laughs> Anybody take up your offer yet? Not yet. Not yet. I'm waiting. I remember back in 2017 when I first met you, when Ideas was in, uh, where were we? Toronto. And you were shortlisted. And, oh, you had this fabulous 
car, you had a, a jaguar that you had painted gold, and the jaguar was seen as, a, I guess, a sign of luxury in India, something to possess. And then eventually Tata, I think, the automaker, yeah. went and bought it. Yeah. And, but, so there was uh, that interesting returnism. But, uh, and then you had it crushed for, again, symbolic about colonialism. It was a really interesting piece. But when, back in 2017, when we were talking to you last time, you were asked in the interview, because it's, the whole thing is about otherism, right? You're the other. People are others. They're, they're separated from what's deemed valuable, I guess, in terms of being a human. But are, are we going to reach a, a point, you were asked, are we going to reach a point where we see one another in one another? And that was a painful question for you. That was five years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. <laughs> and it's still painful. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think, I, I'm sorry, I don't think much has changed in five years. In relationship, it's like, are we going to, no. I would, I, you know, I don't, I don't remember exactly how I responded, but I do. I'm, I don't feel like much has changed. I feel like, um, things have just become like more complicated, more divisive, more oppressive, angrier. It's like more, more violent. But, and and I, I I know where you're coming from here, and I'm sorry that it remains such a painful question. And I think it's good for people who don't face uh, backlash for being the other, for being different, for being different color skin, for being whatever can't understand really how deep that pain is um, but your art is trying to address that and in that there's hope right um, yes thank you <laughs> you know you you make this work in hopes that someone that's coming from like an entirely different lived experience um, can connect to it um, they see the heartbreak, they see the pain that you're experiencing, and, they're, um, and they see something um, beautiful in that. I wish that people would like see the light in one another. Like that is like, um, that's like a dream, <laughs> a dream. Well, your work made me do that. So I want to thank you very, very much. And uh, I really look forward to what the future brings <laughs> for your art. Thank you. You are listening to The New Masters, the 2022 Sobe Art Award. To learn more about the artists and the award, go to cbc.ca slash ideas. Special thanks to Jonathan Shaughnessy, Lillian Lay, and Angela Cassie of the National Gallery of Canada, as well as Bernard Doucet and Rob Sobe of the Sobe Art Foundation. Technical production for ideas, Pat Martin and Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayusel. This program was produced by Mary Link. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.